I'm here with Father Sean Kilcally. We just recorded a Life on the Rock episode with Father. And um, Father, you mentioned about you like to start with the gospel, you know, in talking about chastity and maybe practical pointers uh, to start with the gospel first. Uh, tell us that gospel. <laughs> <laughs> tell us the gospel. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when we're talking about issues of unchastity or pornography or... You know, people who are struggling with habitual sexual sin. Um, really, we're talking about a conversion process, and and people who find themselves in that position where they're struggling with sexual sin, you know, they oftentimes carry with them these core beliefs like I'm unlovable. If people really knew me, they'd reject me. No one, not even God, can meet my needs, so I have to meet my own needs. And pornography or masturbation or it could be workaholism, it could be drugs or alcohol is the best way to meet my needs. And and so the most important thing I think we do as a church is to go back to the core gospel message. You know, as Pope Francis says in Evangelii Gaudium, Jesus Christ loves you, he gave his life to save you, he's now walking at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. You know, this first proclamation is called first, not because it becomes comes at the beginning and then can be replaced by more important things. It's first in a qualitative sense. And and so, like, for those who are struggling with, especially with sexual sin, uh, they need to hear that our Lord loves them, especially, like, in those moments of their sinfulness. You know, for most of them, their behavior started before they had heard the gospel in the first place, Know, before they had tried to change their life or they had a conversion in college. And um, and then when their behaviors don't necessarily change, it becomes an occasion for despair. Um, John Paul II once said that, you know, sexual sin isn't the worst thing, but the abuse of sexuality most impedes spirituality you know, because it does lead to despair. And oftentimes, you know, I'll remind people in the confessional um, like, are you also despairing of God's love for you? And, oh, yes, Father. Um, I sh- of course I am, Father. And, um, and to bring that to our Lord as well, because, you know, we're really replacing our Lord with a thing instead, you know, of the person when we have an addiction. And it seems like the Lord breaks into our life with that awareness of his love oftentimes through others, right? We experience that love from others, self-acceptance. You talked about that on the show about, you know, opening up to others' direction or groups or whatever. Um, Do you find that true with the people you work with? Oh, absolutely. And it's when we're willing to be vulnerable with our Lord, you know, and be vulnerable with another person that we have the opportunity to experience mercy. You know, I often use the example of the woman caught in adultery and, you know, how... You know, as a prostitute, she probably has a whole backstory. You know, maybe she was abandoned by her family, or maybe she was raped when she was younger. Or she just felt unworthy of real love or real marriage, and she ends up in a life of prostitution and probably had a lot of self-hatred and wished that she was dead. And then these men barge into the room and drag her out in the street and throw her down in front of our Lord. And for her, in her own experience, she might be thinking, well, now everybody knows how I feel about myself, and the crowd's confirming the way she feels about herself. And then our Lord bends down to write in the sand, 
and and really when he bends down to write in the sand, he's putting himself within her line of sight because in her shame, she's most likely looking at the ground so that she can notice how he looks at her. And, and when she notices him looking at her with the look of love, that's completely contrary to the way she sees herself or the way that the crowd sees her. His look of love is what changes her heart. You know, in that moment where she's most vulnerable, where she believes she's unlovable, our Lord is loving her. And in the contrast between the crowd looking at her with lust and Jesus looking at her with love, you know, and it's the look of love that transforms her heart. You know, in Divas and Misericordia, John Paul II says that the church professes and proclaims conversion, and conversion to God is always the fruit of the rediscovery of this Father who is rich in mercy. You know, that mercy is what leads to conversion, and mercy is experiencing our Lord's love in those moments in which we feel most unlovable. And Pope Francis has a nice way of saying it, too, that like, when we turn back to him, Jesus always gets there first. It's like he's waiting for us, and maybe it's that encounter that turns us back. And, and tonight you finished up the show with a wonderful quote from uh, the then Cardinal Ratzinger about that right, receiving love from the Father. Talk about that, what you said. Yeah, so the quote I used is from an article called Truth and Freedom, um, which is actually a pro-life article. And uh, and he says the real God is by his very nature entirely being for, which is the Father's love, being from, which is the Son's love, and being with, or the Holy Spirit. And man, for on his part, is God's image precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. So there's a pattern of love in our lives, in our human experience, the way we learn how to love is first by being a son or a daughter who is from their parent, right? Then as we get older, we enter into reciprocal relationships and friendships, and, and those friendships become marriages, and the fruit of those marriages is becoming a mother and a father who give themselves in love to their children. In that quote, he goes on to say that whenever we attempt to free ourselves from the pattern, we're not on our way to divinity but to dehumanization to the destruction of being itself through the destruction of the truth. And, and we free ourselves from the pattern in many ways. You know, if I'm more concerned about the fruitfulness of my ministry than my prayer life, I'm freeing myself from the pattern. Or the woman who's more concerned about volunteering at her parish than receiving love from our Lord is freeing herself from the pattern. You know, in our modern culture where we find our identity in you know, our sexual attraction or our sexual arousal, rather than finding our identity and where we're from, we're freeing ourselves from the pattern. And in um, that fundamental aspect of identity is in our relationality, and most specifically in that relationship of being son or daughter. And, you know, in my own life, that has had an immense impact on my own spirituality. Um, I grew up in a family with an alcoholic father. Um, my parents, my parents were divorced and remarried when they married each other, and so they each had children. Um, my mother died when I was two years old, and then my dad remarried a third time and had more children. And then my dad and my stepmom got divorced when I was in college. 
And so I was a really good kind of um, hero rescuer, child of an alcoholic who could take on the world and solve everybody's problems. Um, and so I went to West Point, was an Army Ranger, went to the seminary, was very successful. And then at a certain point, um, just became depleted because I was really good at being for, but I wasn't very good at being from. And, um, and it was when I was studying at the John Paul II Institute that, you know, I started to kind of be stubborn about figuring out what it means to be a son. And, uh, and that really led to my own conversion. And I'll often say it really saved my priesthood in many ways. And how would you describe that? What does it mean to be a son? So in Lumen Fide, um, which is kind of the third of those encyclicals that Pope Benedict framed his pontificate with, um, he talks about the act of faith being an act by which we entrust ourselves to a merciful love that always accepts and pardons and makes straight the crooked lines of our history. And so entrust ourselves to another person, it really means like I know that this person loves me so much so that I could turn off my brain and let them make all my decisions for the rest of the day. And I know that at the end of the day, my life's going to be better than it was at the beginning. You know, and how many people can we really say that about? And can we really say that about our Lord? Um, when I was in Rome and I was studying, one of the, uh, the kind of beginnings of my conversion experience was when I found myself just really struggling with being there at all. Um, I always thought I was going to be an army chaplain, and when I went to ask Bishop Bruskowitz's permission, he instead offered for me to go to grad school. And so my military career ended. I went to grad school. It was the second time in my life that all my West Point classmates were you know, fighting a war, and I was sitting in class. And, and I started getting really frustrated with the content because it was different from my family that I grew up in. And I would go to bed at night, and I would just fantasize about... You know, what if I was a chaplain in Afghanistan and I'd be saying mass in the battlefield and I'd be, you know, running into old classmates and single-handedly stopping faction wars, you know, things like that. Um, and then it started to drift more and more and more. And, uh, you know, what if I never became a priest? What if I married my high school girlfriend? I had, like, all my children named, you know, in this alternate life. And, um, and that led to more and more anxiety and a really deep kind of depression and there was one day I was out running by St. Peter's, and I was looking up at St. Peter's, and I said out loud for the first time in my life, I want to be a priest. And when I was a kid, I always said, I think God wants me to be a priest. And like this passive thing, like, isn't it tragic? You know, it's, it's like the best vocation in the world. You get to take a piece of bread and say, this is my body, it's Jesus, and raise people from the dead in the confessional. Isn't it tragic? Um, and uh, then in the seminary, I remember my spiritual director asking me things like, you know, what do you want to do? And I'd say, I want to do whatever God wants me to do, right? Which sounds really holy, but I think I was kind of looking for a holy loophole, you know? If we're only willing to say, I want to do whatever God wants, that kind of leaves this space. So sometime in the future, I could look back and say, oh, I was immature. I didn't really know what God wanted. He didn't want this. He wanted that. So entrusting ourselves to... Our Lord really means that I desire with my own desire, I will with my own will, the very thing that God wants for me. You know, so if I say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want you to be a priest, then I say I want to be a priest. You know, like Every single day, I want to be a priest. 
for a married person, every single day I want to be a husband. Mm. Every single day I want to be a wife. Every single day I want to be a dad. Every single day I want to be a mom. Because we're all subject to kind of feeling burnt out or the grind of routine. And, um, you know, there's plenty of days in my own priesthood where, you know, I'm really tired. I've been on the road. I get back. I'm giving a talk at a parish. And I have to say, I want to be a priest, (laughs) right? Like in this moment, that's what I want to do. And that's a great point that, yeah, it's not just a passive thing. He He wants us to give ourselves to him and our intellect, will, our choice, decision, energies, all that. That's a great, a great point. But, uh, but that was connected to your like, kind of discovery of sonship in a deeper way then? Yeah, because really sonship, if sonship is entrusting myself to this person, then that means that I want to do the thing that God wants for me. Like I believe that what he wants for me is greater than what I want for myself. And it's not simply an act of the will, um, but really a response to our Lord's love. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's not easy. I think the hardest thing that we do is let our Lord love us the way that he wants to love us. Yeah. And, um, and Ratzinger said something like that. It's hard for us to accept God's love, right? Is that the way he said it? Or? Um, and Ratzinger, Ratzinger just laid out that foundation, um, but he goes back to it over and over and over again. You know, that when we learn to love, we learn to love first as a child, then as a spouse, then as a parent. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, a lot, of, a, a lot of people, like, they don't have a point of reference for loving as a child. You know, for knowing that this person is trustworthy, that they're always going to be here for me, mm. and therefore I can put my life in their hands. You know, I can allow them to guide my life in everything that I do. You know, the most important thing is what our Lord is doing in this place and this time. And I liked your connection too, with uh, you know describing like the lack of connection, and then we medicate that with whatever, eating, boozing, mm-hmm. pornography, that, uh, that at the heart of it, there's a, a deeper problem than the behavior itself that's not receiving God's love or connecting with God and others. And uh, I think that's a point we miss oftentimes. Now, if I could just stop this one behavior, then I'll be okay. Well, it's a lot bigger than that. <laughs> right, because we can't stop the behavior unless... Um, we know that there's something more secure, Um, which I think is why Pope Francis constantly is going back to proclaiming the kerygma and the need to do first evangelization because it is repeating the truth over and over and over again Mm -hmm. about who we are, about how God sees us, and so that eventually it sinks in, and we know that we can hand our lives over to him. And, you know, with addicts or people who are enslaved to sexual sin, the most trustworthy thing in their life is pornography. You know, that's what, you know, when they were a kid and their mom and dad were fighting upstairs and they wanted to get away from their negative emotions, they looked at pornography, and it, it numbs out their brain. It works pretty well to escape from whatever's going on in the moment. And if we learn that from a young age, it becomes, you know, a difficult task to unlearn it so that we're really going to our Lord. 
Um, and I often talk to people about how pornography and masturbation, they're a sin against the first commandment, maybe even more than the sixth commandment, because if we're bored, lonely, angry, stressed, tired, and we take refuge in pornography, then pornography has become our God, you know, and so sometimes to break through denial, I'll have people pull out Psalm 71, in you, O Lord, I take refuge, let me never be put to shame, and I'll just have them replace Lord with pornography, and say it out loud, because that's what they're doing, and, uh, and the reactions are often kind of um, this realization, like, wow, that's actually true. Um, or sometimes laughter when they realize how ridiculous it is, but it's true. Um, because it becomes a false god for us. And I've, I've heard many people say, you know, like the sexual revolution is, like women suffer from that. You know, men maybe suffer more in the sense of they're the ones committing a lot of evil. <laughs> And that's a worse suffering in one way than suffering evil itself. But, you know, women, I think they always get the shorter end of the stick in the sexual revolution. You know, they're the ones left with the child. They're the ones, you know, that might be tempted to have the abortion and have all the personal fallout from that. And also, you know, with our objectification of women in the media and everything, this has hit me more recently, too, just the pressure that must be on young women you got to look a certain way. You know, in the media world, you got all these camera angles, lightings, makeup, Photoshop, whatever. You know, that person doesn't even really look like that, you know. But you got this impossible standard of perfection that these women can't possibly live up to. I just think that would, that must really, and I guess, you know, feminists have been saying this for years, but I guess it just struck me in a new way, just kind of the difficulties for women, the more the culture is sexualized and it gets out of proportion mm-hmm. yeah I totally agree with that that um, you know a lot of young women who get caught up in pornography they do so because that's what they're competing with mm-hmm. um, and and they too they're growing up in disconnected families they're growing up really with this hunger for love <clears throat> And maybe the best they can do is to be sexually attractive to somebody. Mm-hmm. And so, so they put more emphasis on you know, their body parts than on who they are mm-hmm. in their own dignity. Um, the, I, really, I think young women and young men both need to learn that their dignity comes from belonging mm-hmm. to our Lord, that chastity is about belonging to our Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we reinforce things in a negative way in the purity culture when um, we give girls the idea that you know they have to be modest because they need to help the boys to be pure or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. which is really common. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen that kind of backfire in a lot of the couples I work with because when their husband has a problem with pornography, then the wife thinks it's her fault because right. she didn't like protect him, right. and it's not her fault. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, most of the time it happened. It came into his life way before she came into his life, mm-hmm. and um, and so the way that we talk about that too, it needs to be like just a way of preaching the gospel to them. Mm-hmm. You know about 
and what it means to belong to our Lord. And our security comes from him and our safety comes from him. And if we're secure in Christ, then we won't have that kind of hunger for affirmation or to attract others in you know, ways that uh, aren't respectful of our dignity. And that that's something like out of classic recovery, right? Al-Anon, you know, the, the damage done to a person growing up with addiction as a family member or whatever, they have their own recovery to go through. And so sometimes that's kind of a hard message to give to somebody. They're saying, he's got the problem. You know, it's all... But yet, you also work with the spouses. What are some of the things you tell them or to help them grow or with their core issues? Uh, the first thing I tell them over and over and over again is I'm sorry that you're going through this right now. And, and it's completely normal to feel betrayed, abandoned, alone, to you know be fixated on everything that went wrong, you know, the oftentimes they've been lied to over and over and over again, you know, so much so that they don't believe anything that their husband says anymore. Um, and when talking to them about starting their own healing process, it's, it's really what I'd say to them is you deserve to have somebody care about you right now. Like you deserve to have people in your life that you can talk to about everything and you deserve for someone to love you right now, you know, and that love might come through the counselor that they go to or the support group that they go to and, and just to be heard and to feel like they're part of a community that can be there to absorb their suffering. Um, because so many times the wives, they, they can have all kinds of distorted thinking themselves you know, that like God wanted me to be married to a porn addict, you know, so somehow I'm going to do reparation for all of the other marriages that are struggling out there. And, you know, I don't believe our Lord hands out sin as a cross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, it's almost as nonsensical as the guy who thinks that Jesus gave him the cross of compulsive masturbation. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's not a cross. <laughs> The cross is resisting that. <laughs> um, the cross is maybe the fact that they have to be humble enough to walk into a meeting. Um, but the cross is not sin. And, um, and so, so just giving wives a place to go. And there's a great website that's just for wives who have been betrayed sexually. It's www.bloomforwomen.com. It's a marriage and family therapist who's a friend of mine named Kevin Skinner is, um, has provided all the content there. And it's, a, it's an amazing resource for women who find themselves in that position. And um, it gives them a place to go right away before they find you know, a face-to-face therapist or a face-to-face support group. And in your own story, I think you mentioned you were struggling with depression. What was kind of the turning point for you? Uh, for me, I had to, um, <laughs> there are like 25 turning points. Um, probably one of the first ones was for other people to point out to me that I needed to get help. And, and that happened in a really strange way. Um, you know, I was struggling with depression. I was in grad school. I was binge watching TV 
like 18 hours of TV a day sometimes because in the Roman system, you don't actually have to do your work on time um, as long as you get it in by the end. And uh, so that procrastination had kicked in, and and I was I was also dealing with my dad had died six years earlier. I didn't really grieve him. There were other things blowing up and other parts of my family. Um, and and I remember going to see a religious sister who was a friend of mine, and I asked her about another priest I know who needed to go to counseling for anger management or something, and I said hey, can you tell me about that program that you guys run in Alma? And she said, oh, Father, I've been hoping that you would come and talk to me about this. Mm. <laughs> so she thought I was asking for me. I was like, it's not me, it's that guy. Um, so, so that started to open up a little bit of space. And, um, and then I just found myself in this position where I felt like my choice was either to kind of shove all those emotions down kind of ignore them, throw myself into my academic work, whether or not I appropriate it. And I could be a really good academic curmudgeonly priest who doesn't really like people. Or I could take a risk to have joy. Right? But the risk to have joy meant going to my bishop and telling him that I wasn't getting my work done and I was dealing with all this stuff and I needed to go to counseling. Right? Which sometimes as a priest, it feels like clerical suicide. Right, because if I tell him I need to go to counseling, then there's the risk that you know father's going to go away, and then he comes back, and he's like a hospital chaplain in a cave in western Nebraska, yeah. and I didn't think that was what our Lord wanted for me. Um, but Bishop Rusquiz was very good, and he was very gentle with me. He was very kind, and and so I spent a summer um, where I dealt with kind of my own family of origin issues, my own attachment issues. Um, and, and our Lord, like, re- he showed me um, very clearly this a rupture that I'd had when I was about four years old. And, um, and that was the beginning of learning how to love again. Um, so I was in chapel, and I was praying over Mary and John at the foot of the cross. And, uh, and it's that scene where Jesus says, Behold your mother. And, you know, my mother died when I was two, and I've given all these homilies on how I don't really know what it feels like to have a mother. But I got stuck in that scripture verse for about two weeks, and then one day he said, Behold your mother. And it was like, boom, my heart moved. <clears throat> and I had all these emotions, these like warm, connected emotions. And, and, and the emotion was attached to a memory of being a kid downstairs in the basement. And this lady comes by the house who sells Mary Kay cosmetics, and She's talking to my stepmom upstairs, and when I heard her voice, I had this emotional reaction to it that I didn't understand. And after she left, I went to my stepmom and I said, am I supposed to know that lady? And she looks at me and goes, no. Well, I feel like I'm supposed to know her. She goes, I'll ask your father. And so I'd never asked my father because it seemed like a question I wasn't supposed to ask. And I just shoved those emotions down and didn't let myself feel them again because I didn't know what they were, and it was really confusing. So when it came up in prayer, then all these other conversations from about a 30-year period came at the same time. It was like a mosaic being put together. And I realized that my mother had cervical cancer while I was in utero. After I was born, she started cancer treatment, which means there's a 24-year-old woman who has a newborn baby and two small sons, and she needs help. 
So the pastor of our parish asked the family to help our family. And they would bring food and they would bring, you know, clean the house, babysit me. When my mother went to the hospital to die, I went to live with them. And the lady who came to the house was the mother of that family. And so when I realized that, I went on the internet trying to find out if they were still alive and, you know, see if they could answer questions. And I found them and uh, I sent a message to her daughter. Like, I don't know if you remember me, but our parents used to be friends. And she sends me back right away. Uh, How could we ever forget the little boy that God sent into our lives? And in about five emails, I learned more about my relationship with my birth mother, my real mother, than I had in my entire life. And so when I went to counseling in Alma, it was two hours away from where this family lives now. And I went to see them. Super nervous, you know, like knocking on the door. Like, uh, Fred, that's a husband. He answers the door, invites me in. We're just sitting there having Miller Lite or something like that. And Mary comes in. We're talking. And at a certain point, she says, hang on, I have something. And she leaves the room and comes back with this big freezer bag. And inside that freezer bag, she had all the birthday cards from my second birthday party. And she had all the newspaper clippings from my high school career. She had a poem the hospital chaplain wrote about my parents when my mother was dying. And she had this red piece of construction paper that says in crayon, to Mary, Mom, from Sean. And you open it up, and it says, I love you in big letters. And she carried all that stuff around for 35 years, like seven times they moved their home just to give it to a 37-year-old priest who had no idea what it meant to be loved unconditionally. And that changed everything. It was my first experience of somebody can love me even when they're not geographically close. Um, And it it just, it was our Lord's way of showing me that he was always taking care of me. And it gave me that real experience of, being loved unconditionally that I had never known, like in all the preaching I ever heard in the formation I'd received in the seminary, like that never sunk in like it did in that moment. And, um, and that's when I started to realize what it means to be a son and, uh, and what it means to be secure in our Lord. And my spiritual life completely shifted from that point in the way that I related to Jesus and, recognized I was responding to what he had done for me and and that it was our Lord who orchestrated all of that you know kind of like Jesus is sitting up in heaven and he goes man that kid's gonna have problems so I need a like pack rat lady and uh, (laughs) I'll have her take care of him Um, but it was it was probably the most significant like experience of being loved in my life and and she didn't contact you all those years because she didn't want to interfere, maybe, with your family? Um, that's a complicated question. Um, you know, I think that when my parents got married, my dad had just lost a wife. Um, my stepmom had just been divorced, and they were trying to start over again. And so at a certain point, we moved towns, like, 20 minutes, and then, like, we never saw anybody who knew us before we moved. And so I think in their own way, my parents were trying to start over. Um, And probably they thought, you know, like he's a kid, the kids are resilient, they'll forget. But emotionally we don't forget. You know, like our bodies don't forget those things. 
Well, that's a great story. I'd, I'd love to end there, but I'd, maybe tell us one more story about a success that you've seen in your ministry uh, of someone overcoming pornography. So I'll give you a couple of snapshots. Um, there's a guy who came in who had just lost his job, and he he was just looking for a priest to support him. I started asking him questions about you know drugs, alcohol, no, pornography, masturbation, no. Um, and then he says, well, I just have trouble with empathy. Like, people say I don't really get people, and, you know, I have trouble with relationships, and I'm kind of all business. And I said, well, I don't know much, but I know that, you know, people who are stuck in pornography and masturbation, the side effect of that is that they don't have empathy, and they have trouble with relationships, and, you know, they don't really get people. And he goes, really? <laughs> Maybe I have that problem. <laughs> well, how often? Every day. Uh, okay, so I gave him a book and the name of a therapist and he leaves my office really motivated about, you know, changing his behavior. Comes back two months later and tells me, you know, he's been clean for two months. He's out in the truck with his son. And his son kind of looked over at him randomly and said, I like the new dad. Just out of the blue, I like the new dad. You know, what happened? He became more affectively present to his son. And that's only two months. Yeah, it's only two months. It's two months of being clean. And his son was able to experience the love of God in the way that his dad loved him. And it changed everything in their family dynamic. Um, there's another guy that I've worked with, and he he's done youth ministry activities for a really long time. He's, you know, one of those families you would think is like the perfect Catholic family. They got like seven kids. Um, and he came and saw me and started going to counseling, had disclosure with his spouse, um, comes in maybe two or three months into recovery, and he says, look, now I know what it means to have a Savior. Like, I know what the word Savior means. Now, he had been talking about a Savior for years, but he never really understood what it meant until he got that out of his life. Um, you know, there's another couple that I'm working with, and, uh, you know, they came in. She came in maybe four years ago to a separated, divorced, widowed group. Um, I invited her to come see me, kind of get her story. And her husband, you know, struggled with different things, but among them was pornography, and they'd never really dealt with that. Um, so they actually started, you know, this process of going to counseling and, her husband maybe wasn't completely committed, and then she found his email account that she didn't know about, found out he was meeting people for anonymous affairs, and she divorced him. But they both stayed engaged. They both came to support groups. They, you know, He kept going to counseling, and eventually they found their way to the right therapist and the right support people. And uh, it's four and a half years later, and they just asked me to remarry them. No, which is amazing to be able to see that kind of transformation. And um, the Lord's replanted what the locusts have eaten. How's that go? <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes the whole gospel come alive. Yeah. You know, like when you hear these stories of people who are lost and then they're found and, and you get to watch that kind of transformation happen and you watch the lights come on in people's eyes. And, um, you know, sometimes people... You know, they'll ask me, like, well, why do you want to do that kind of work? But it's probably the most exciting work you can do. That's why we became priests, is to, like, change people's lives. <laughs>
Well, thanks so much for chatting with us. Thanks for being on the show. It was really good. Thank you, Father.